I just like catching them in clear water. Okay. Like I like not having anything around me from like a tree or snag perspective because they eat your fly and then they just run. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. You get around bluff walls and stuff like that and you have 100 foot or 40 foot trees. Yeah. That's where you'll catch those big fish. Like you'll hook them and you'll never stop them. Like you cranky drag all the way down and just right down into the trees. Gotcha. And you feel them like wobble you into it and you're like, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's <laughs> yep. the end of that. <laughs> You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. You've got Kyle Veet on the mic, as always, and I am joined by my co-host of the show, Mr. Kyle Plunkett. That right there is an intro, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's done. That is how it's done. How you doing, man? I'm great. We just uh, we just wrapped up a really, really good episode. I'm really excited about it. Yes, we did. We got to sit down with uh, Mr. Dan, the man, Roberts. You, you have heard his name in the past if you've been listening to the podcast from different guests that we've talked to. But only subtly. But subtly. Mm -hmm. And we talked about a lot of different things. Uh, Yeah, we heard about how striped bass made it from saltwater into freshwater back in the 60s or whatever, maybe that program started, into how they're thriving in the uh, the freshwater systems of of the Ozarks, really. One thing that really stood out to me in our conversation was how he kept emphasizing the striped bass is the saltwater fish of our freshwater system. Like, yeah. And if you want to fight a fish that, f- that fights like a, a saltwater fish, like these are the, the fish you go after. And it was uh, really, really interesting stuff. Stuff I've never thought about. No, never. And just to hear that there are fish that can live in salt and freshwater, amazing. Mm-hmm. It's just really cool. If you guys want to learn how to catch stripers and, and try to go do that, it's not that complicated. It's, it's really not. There's a few things you need, but you get out there, you put in your time, and you can pull in a 15 to 35 pound fish <laughs> on a fly rod. You can go catch a fish like this, yeah. which oh, I want to go catch some stripers. Dude, I do too. So yeah, y'all check out the episode and we hope you enjoy it. We've got Dan Roberts with us here in person at my house. What a pleasure. What an honor. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. I suddenly feel like there's thousands of people <laughs> watching me in the corner of your room. Not watching. <laughs> I don't love just that. Just listening. Yeah, exactly. Listening. Just listening like behind the wall. Yeah. <laughs> They're there. Just ignore them. They, behind the wall. For now, yeah, just ignore them. It's all the ghosts in your house. They will, they will be there later. We've got uh, Kyle Plunkett on, on the horn as well. How are yep. you, buddy? Good. Happy to be here. Yes, sir. Happy to be included in your house invite list as well. Hey, man. My house is your house. Mikasa, is it an honor and a privilege? Well, need to be here. <laughs> it's all it's always that. Okay. It is. But it is it is especially great to have Dan with us tonight. Um we've been talking, Dan. I'm going back. Um, I, I was thinking about the first time we heard your name, um, heard about you, because a lot of times we find out about guests through other guests. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was the case with you. I think the first time we ever heard your name was talking to Andrew McNeese. Cool. From yeah. Bluffline Media. Oh, yeah. He's the man. Um, and he was talking about, he's got this series on YouTube. If you guys go back and listen to that, I forget which number episode it was, but um, he's got this series on YouTube called Ozarks on the Fly. Yeah. And he went through several different, I think it was seven or eight different um, individual topics. Yep. And you yeah. were you were like the the feature, the feature dude for the Striper yeah. um, episode. 
And, um, and so that was the first time. The second time was, I think we were talking with uh, Steve Daly. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, you and he are good buddies. Yep. You, you've known him for a while. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you've worked at McClellan's in the past. Yep. So it's like a lot of, you know, these. That is why your face is so familiar. I've been trying to place it for the last hour. Oh, have you really <laughs> been in there? Yes. Have you been in there in the last five years? I'm sure. Oh, you've seen, pl- yeah. plenty of times. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like I walked in and was like, I know this guy. I know this guy from <laughs> somewhere. You walked how. in and I was like, what do you want? What, do you, what can I get for you? <laughs> yeah. We have zebra midges. What size? <laughs> do you want the rubies or uh-huh. do you want the the zebra midges? Okay. The root beers. It's all making sense. Yeah. yeah. So that's like all these connections kind of coming together. But um, but we've got you here now. And um, we so you, you do a lot of different things. You've done a lot of different things. I think I'd love to just start. We, we ultimately want to talk about for anyone who's who's listening and wondering, like, what are these guys going to talk about today? Because we could cover a lot of different stuff. Um, just from the first 30 minutes we just talked before we started recording, we want to talk about striped bass and how you can catch stripers mm. on the fly. And we'll get to all that because I'm super intrigued. That sounds amazing to me um, to be able to go and do that. But let's just start with like, what do you do? Um, I know you are a sales rep and you work in the outdoor industry. It's kind of an interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people know about what that looks like. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of the background on, on who you are and, and kind of what you do. Yeah, so uh, I guess I was born and raised in Little Rock and then came up to Fayetteville for school, um, graduated from there, and then basically got a job um, as an outdoor sales rep. And it's just a, I don't even really know how to describe the job. It's an incredible job. It's something that I wish everybody could experience at some point. Um, Because like I was telling you before, you know, no two days are really the same ever. Um, it's, it's just an interesting experience overall. And you kind of like, I've been doing it for almost six years now. And you look back after that amount of time, you're like, like I've done a, a lot of different things and yeah. got to see a lot of different cool stuff. Like the best way that I can describe it from the outside in, I think from my perspective is um, like giving to, getting to live out like every childhood dream that you've ever had. If you grew up fishing okay. specifically. Yeah. Um, like that really came full circle for me at the, we did a Sims Lake Fork BASS event this past spring, just getting to hang out like at the Sims tent. Like I was the Sims guy, you yeah. know, which like, I don't want to sound conceited or anything, <laughs> but getting to hang out with all the different pros and stuff. Like it's just, I don't know. It's incredible. Yeah. Honestly. So, but from a day to day, um, so we, uh, rep five different companies essentially. So we've got, uh, Sims, uh, Ross and Able Fly Reels, so that's two technically, uh, and then Umqua Feather Merchants and Buff. Um, so what's cool about that is we rep a lot of different fly fishing stuff, but we also do a lot of the conventional side, and then with the Buff stuff, um, we it just spans the breadth of everything outdoors. Yeah. <clears throat> so when it comes to that, we get to do a lot of different stuff and meet a lot of different people. Um, so we work for those different companies essentially as, I guess, contractors, everybody calls us brokers. Like when they ask me, you know, like how the job works, they're always like, Oh, so you're a, you're like a broker. Like, I guess so. Yeah, exactly. We talked about finance earlier. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's not my realm. Like I call myself a Sims rep. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, so we've got five States in our territory. It's Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi. So it's a whole lot of stuff to cover. Um, but essentially, 
we are like the middleman between like the company Sims and the local retailer like McClellan. So we are okay. the guy who, um, like I was telling you before, basically twice a year we'll go through with the Sims product, all the new stuff in the spring and the fall. We'll show them all the new product and help them with their preseason buys for the following year. Um, and then we also just do a lot of day-to-day stuff um, with our retailers, just helping them through the ordering process, helping them with inventory management. It's I, it's very interesting how many retailers, I would tell you, like I, like, I feel like I own sometimes just mm-hmm. because they really, like, they just hand me the ordering capabilities. They're oh, okay. like, like, we don't necessarily know what we're doing yet. It happens a lot with newer retailers, and they're just like, make us an opening order and like send it, see what happens. Like we're going to let you keep up with the inventory. It's like, I already have enough people. You sure you want me to do that? So um, that's kind of unique just because you, you are on like the sales side of things. mm -hmm. Like that it's a business giving you like almost access to their, their books and hundred percent in their pocketbook. People literally do that too. Yeah. They're like, Oh, you just order whatever you want. Here's the credit card number. I'm like, (laughs) Don't do that. Dude. Like, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> you should have a little bit more yeah. say in this. <laughs> right. Um, but no, just so like from that perspective, there's you get to do something different every day. Um, when it comes to the travel portion of it, that's super neat, obviously. Like I just got back from Louisiana, which is my favorite place to go to just for the food. It's incredible. Um, yeah, I think I saw you, – did you stop by Cafe Du Monde? So – I, that was the first time I ever went there. I okay. stopped by the one in the city park in New Orleans. Okay. And it was, I don't know, like it was good, but. Was it I, not cracked up? To I don't know. It like it's just, it's just like there's so much powdered sugar on it, it and stuff like sweet, that. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I went into it with the thing or with the thought of like, I'm going to get a breakfast out of this. And it's like all I got was sugar. No, dude. It's <laughs> like a total sweet tooth. Yeah. I went there. I, the, I've been there a couple of times actually with our, our producer, um, Daniel, and um, he's got family from New Orleans. And yeah. anytime we went down there, down there, it was like, we're going to Cafe Du Monde. Yeah. And, and as a, you know, fifth, six, sixth grader, seventh grader, I was like, oh, anything with sugar, powdered yeah, sugar, right. I'm going to eat that up. <laughs> Super good. If it just, for me at least, and I guess this is like the Arkansas part of me or whatever, the non-Louisiana part, like if it comes to a donut or a beignet, like I'm donut. Really? Yeah, ten, no, All yeah. right, man. Absolutely. I'd be in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Like a blueberry cake donut for Shipley's. You can't beat that. That's good stuff. We're you in the can't. same boat now twice. Okay. That was my Perfect. that was my groomsman groom's cake for I love that. Really? A stack of blueberry donuts. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> yeah. You were there, dude. Well, <laughs> do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. But anyway. um anyway, so you get to travel a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, love the food aspect of it. That's the only reason I do the job is for the food. Um, no, but it is very cool overall. The, the job, like I said, I wish everybody kind of got to experience it because there are so many people in the just outdoor industry that, that, you know, either approach me or approach other people and they're like, how do I get into this sales rep deal? Hmm. So it's definitely something that's sought after. Um, and it's just a, it's a cool job in general. Yeah. No, it's my summary. It's a cool job. It is a cool yeah. job. Man. <laughs> and it's it's cool to me too, because I think even before that, um, you got to like work on the retailer side too, right? Yes. So through college, you you worked at McClellan's or Yep. So um actually the day I turned 16, I started working at the fly shop in Little Rock, those Arc Angler. So okay. yeah. I had like my first, I don't know, like 
four years, I guess, of retail experience with the Ozark Angler. Um, and then came up here for school and worked for McClellan's uh, for a couple of years as well. Okay. So, yeah, it's it was cool because I got to see kind of two different clienteles through the store, um, two different fisheries, obviously. Like, you know, the Little Rock shop was always primarily um, trout-oriented, and, like, it would change slightly with some of the seasons in the spring and whatnot. Um, but like you come to McClellan's and they're so dedicated to like the white bass and the walleye run in the spring. Right. That's really cool. Um, that they change so dramatically with the seasons for sure. Yeah. So just getting the different experience and things like that, it was, it was neat yeah. to have that. What was the, the go-to down in Little Rock for most people fishing like the Little Red or? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For trout, it was pretty much the Little Red or the folks with a boat or whatever would go up to the White in the North Fork. It was the same kind of deal over here as well. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's like some people fish the beaver tail water. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it is what it is. No no shade on the beaver tail water. But we, we love the beaver tail water. Yeah. So don't sometimes go... it's just a lake. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, it's like a very long and skinny pond. That's literally it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. It's uh yeah, it's 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 interesting that the fisheries change kind of from from place to place and you have the warm water side up here. I'm surprised a little bit that there's not more targeted warm water fishing down in Little Rock because you do kind of you can go up into the to the Ozarks and you can get access to like the Piney and and the Mulberry and you can kind of be yeah. around some of those areas not not too far away. For sure. Um and you're exactly right. I think the the close proximity up here is what really helps it more than anything else. Like you can, you know, you can drive 10 minutes from McClellan's and be on smallmouth. Yeah. And where it comes to Little Rock, it's more like, you know, you got to drive an hour or something like that. But it's just a very trout-centric area. That mm-hmm. being said, there are a lot of folks who um, like to fish the the local creeks and stuff like that. And like what I did, fishing the, the golf course ponds for grass carp, mm-hmm. that was like... Again, I don't want to sound conceited, but that was like where my claim to fame or whatever came from. Was, really? It was fly fishing for grass carp. Uh, I didn't know at that. A, yeah, at a, at a golf course in Little Rock. Um, that was when people were like, how do you fly fish for that or whatever? Because, you know, it's grass carp. They're like they're like 30 pounds each. And, and they're, they're super picky, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, so they only eat grass, right? Um, so I remember the first one that I ever caught, it was like at dark. And so it had to have been a fluke. Like, he ate a small marabou clouser minnow. <laughs> yeah. And I caught it with my five weight, fought it for, like, I don't oh know, a half hour or something <laughs> like that. Got the thing in. I'll just show you the picture later. But yeah, you have to. I was just, it was one of those things was like, oh, look at this thing. Like, you can catch this on a fly rod. That's cool. And then shortly after that, like, started getting into the striper thing. Um, I think it was around the same time. I don't want to say that grass carp were, like, the catalyst for big fish chasing for me, but... It was a it was a large part of it, I would say. Yeah, what uh, I what got you started into fly fishing in general? Uh, like, kind of how did that evolve? How did you get into fishing and, and hunting? And then how did that kind of that evolution take place? Yeah, so the fishing thing was definitely from my dad. Um, it was something that he like instilled in me when I was so young. You know, I I don't remember how young I was when I started. At least going on the boat with him, it was probably two or three years old. It was one of those like, oh, oh, yeah. So it's been my entire life for the most part. Like, it just, I don't know, people like to describe who they are. Like, I am fishing. I mean, that's what I do. I really enjoy hunting and, like, turkey hunting, like I was talking to you about the other night. But when it comes down to it, like, fishing is what I do. 
Um, it's been that way my whole life. My dad was the one who taught me. He, um, the interesting thing was, and I'm so like blessed that I got to experience the sport this way for like, man, I don't know, probably the first five or seven years. Um, we only conventional bass fished because that's what he primarily did. Okay. So I grew up on a bass boat, like with spinning gear and bait casters and learning all the different techniques and stuff like that. And so, especially when you're like a young kid like that, you're such a sponge and you can, you can get really good at stuff like that really quickly. Um, and then he essentially taught me how to fly fish. Um, when I was starting to, I don't know, I was eight or nine, something like that. Um, but that came in, uh, like coherence with fly tying as well. Okay. So a lot of people are like, oh, I've been fly fishing for a long time. I want to get into fly tying. It was almost, I think I might have started tying flies before I started fly fishing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is unique because it's it's usually, like the fly tying can be, a, it. well, I'll say this, I'll try not to offend anyone. It can be a bit of a hassle. Yeah. <laughs> like getting all the feathers and yeah. tying super small things and then learning all these different patterns like it can be a lot and it can be overwhelming and intimidating so to actually you you usually need like the bug of like five you know Mm -hmm. pun intended but like uh the fly fishing bug to like hook you first and then you go into the tying yeah or or you need to be the guy who has fly fished for long enough that he starts realizing that the two dollars he's paying for the root beer jig could cost him 11 cents to make it home. <laughs> yeah. And then that's the entry. <laughs> yeah. Like, actually could save a lot of money here. Yeah. And then, you, true. You know, then you got the double bug. It's making some financial sense, but I also love catching fish. So right. what I would tell it, you but. from that perspective is I've had a lot of people, like, through working in the shops, they're like, oh, I think I want to get into tying flies so I can uh-huh. save money on flies. Like, you will never save a dime. <laughs> like, now that being said. Because they, they buy all the fancy stuff. They buy everything. You mm-hmm. know, like, you think about the initial investment to get into fly tying. Like, it's not that bananas, but Mm-mm. it's enough. Yeah. And then, now... To your point, like if all you want to tie is woolly boogers and San Juan worms and zebra midges and stuff, like, oh, absolutely. You'll save yourself a boatload of money. Yeah. But then you got to factor in like the time you take to tie mm-hmm. all those flies because not all of those take, you know, a short amount of time. Um, it's just, you're never going to save money. Do it. You <laughs> don't fair. do it. That's not how it works. I yeah. think because I only tie root beer midges, <laughs> I may be in the very, That's very yeah. small yeah. percentage of people yeah. who may actually come out on top. Fair enough. Yeah, you have to be like disciplined and like I only buy these three materials. That's all it is. And these two oh, hooks, size eighteen see, hook. See, that's brutal. Head. No, I, I don't. I don't love tying enough to like. Really okay, do it that's though. fair. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. Hello, Ozark Podcast listeners. My name is Chris Hinkle, and I'm co-owner at True North Realty Group. Having sold over twenty thousand acres in property across Arkansas. Missouri, Oklahoma, and Kansas proves I'm willing to go the extra mile to sell or help you purchase the right farm. Here at True North, the relationship goes well beyond the sale, and I consult with clients on a daily basis on how to improve their property. It truly makes a difference to have a land specialist that understands things like easements, timber values, access, and property layouts. We also have a team of agents dedicated to residential sales in Arkansas and Missouri. So whatever your real estate needs are, we have you covered here at True North Realty Group. You can reach me at 620-215-0033. Again, Chris Hinkle at 620-215-0033. 
Let me go to work for you. But you tied quite a bit. Uh, oh yeah. And I know we'll get to I know we'll get to you actually have a couple of flies that you've invented and and sell through is it? I'm going invented. I like I don't <laughs> I just want to say like from an outside perspective like I hate the word invented okay, when it I comes don't know to flies. To... No, and like no fault of your own because that's how everybody describes it. But like there are very few invented flies out there. Okay. Like Blaine Chocolate, he invents flies. Okay. Like yeah. the the game changer, his super gummy articulated. Minnow, like stuff like that. Like I'm sure that there might have been someone doing that, but like that guy invents flies. Gotcha. Mm. Like that's why I I gravitate so hard towards bass flies and like the bass fly fishermen and stuff like that. Like those guys make flies. Like it's not a pheasant tail with a green flashback yeah, this right. time. In like no mm-hmm. shade on the trout thing. I just want to say like I enjoy trout fishing, but I'm not wild about it. Okay. Like I'm very, very like warm water oriented gotcha. when it comes to my fly fishing life because yeah. I do so much conventional fishing as well. Mm-hmm. Um so that being said, anyway, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out. There. No, that's good. I mean, you you were brought up like your your background, like you said, you started very much in conventional bass fishing out of a boat on a lake, I assume, and yep, and doing that and on the river. So growing okay. up in Little Rock, like we did fish lakes very often, but really the Arkansas River was oh, okay. like where I grew up gotcha. for the most part. Um, I mean, it was you know it was twice a week during the summertime. Sometimes when it wouldn't get dark until. 9 p.m. or whatever, I'd get off school, um, I guess come home from school, and then it was like, really, you want to go fish? Like, I don't have anything going on this afternoon. So we'd fish for like three hours. Uh, And it was like that for my entire life. Like, you know, there were those, there was the normal kid who was like on a Friday night, like they were either getting into some kind of trouble or like hanging out with friends and partying and stuff like that. Like, it's just, I, you know, like I, hung out with friends and everything, but it was never like, oh, I came home at 2 a.m. Like, yeah. it's like, I got to be home at 10. Like, we're waking up at 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Can't get home at 2 a.m. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I don't know. Sorry, that was such a tangent. But anyway, no, that's, that's okay. where I like kind of started fishing was the Little Rock area. Um, so rivers, lakes, all of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So from from the fly shop to the carp, growing up the way you did, what was the progression into what you love to do now? Like what were some of the milestones that you look back on and you're going, that's that's what got me into what I love to do? Yeah, man. At least when it comes to the stripers, like I can pretty distinctly remember the first striper, like the first big striper that I caught on Lake Washita, um, which is only like an hour away from Little Rock. So that's one of the lakes we used to fish. But um, I don't even really think at the time that I was like attempting to get into the striper thing yet. We just happened upon them one day like yeah. back in the good old days when there were <laughs> when there were a bunch of stripers around because and we'll get into this later but like the lack of stripers in in Arkansas and the surrounding like states is alarming now but um back in the good old days when they were just everywhere you know they'd come up in the spring and the winter time and they'd school on the surface that's primarily how we still find them but um you know, like just cast it into the pod yeah. with a with a nine weight or whatever that I was probably bass fishing with, and it was like, oh my god, what is this? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, from that point, I was just like, I gotta keep doing this. Like, this is all I want to do now. You yeah. know, um, so it was definitely an interesting transition for me. Uh, I feel like, unlike a lot of people, when my dad taught me how to fly fish, that's like all I did. Um, until we actually started 
repping for St. Croix Rods, okay. which was, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, something like that. So you kind of hung up the conventional stuff oh, yeah. for a while. Like I didn't, I didn't touch it for, man, 12 years. Really? Oh, yeah. 10, 12 years. Wow. Something like that. Like it was, I was that guy. I was like, fly or die, baby. Yeah. Like that's all I want to <laughs> do. Um, but, and again, like no shade on that guy. Um, but like, yeah, that was me for a long time. Like yeah. that's all. So again, like being young and being a fly fishing only person, I learned a lot really quickly. Like from a casting perspective, I was just relentless. Like I figured out the double haul and wanted to learn how to do it. So I stood in my street like every day for a summer. I'd cast for like 45 minutes, just double hauling. Yeah. Like never letting it fall. Yeah. It was stuff like that. Like I was just relentless with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, I guess my fly fishing experience. And now like since we, since we had St. Croix for a little while, that's really what initiated the conventional side back into my life. And now I'm like, I still fly fish quite a bit. Like I only fly fish for stripers for the most part, but I mean, conventional bass fishing is like one of my all time favorite things to do now that okay. and crappie fishing. And we talked about that. Yeah. So I'll just do it all. Yeah. And do everything. Yeah. I mean, why not? That, that's the thing. I think a lot of people, you can, you can really get into one thing and then like make that your entire personality Absolutely. or your passion or whatever. But like, there, there are just there are certain situations where it honestly makes sense to to go back and forth and to be well versed at you know picking up a spin rod or when you're casting at docks on a lake and you want to get up under something you might need a bait caster. You got to flip under there. Yeah, yeah. There's you're not going to cast a over over the top you know fly casting them. right. So I think that's that's like a good way to to be. It's just it is hard to kind of go back and forth sometimes, especially when you think about how much money you spend on. Oh man, one set double of gear. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Could just go ahead and double it. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, <laughs> For it, sure. It adds up. It adds yeah. up. But no, that's good that you do that and that your background kind of allowed you to like know both and, yeah. and kind of play both, which is a big part of striper fishing. Oh yeah. Right? Like, Absolutely. You kind of have to play both sides. You're you're in a boat, you're using like a fish finder, yep. I assume. Yeah. Absolutely. But so you're fish fishing with a fly rod. Exactly. So there's there's so many aspects of like chasing stripers with a fly rod that like you really kind of need to learn from the conventional side like there are quite a few fly anglers out there who know how to operate like electronics and like some type of skilled level um that is not me see i don't but know like fish the, finders at all the I've general one, so. <laughs> exactly like yeah. that's the general you know consensus is and again like not to say that fly fishermen don't know how to use electronics and things like that but like that's so central to the conventional world. Mm -hmm. So you just like, you're able to learn things from both sections of fishing, I guess. And then you can, when you piece it all together, that's fly fishing for stripers. Yeah. Um, Which you want to talk about chasing the most difficult fish in the lake. Uh, It's, it's a fish that I don't think they have any lactic acid buildup from what I understand. So like they never stop. Like the fish, they don't just idle around like a bass or a crappie. They'll, get on a brush pile and live there for, you know, several months or maybe a couple weeks or whatever. Like stripers, they follow food and they never stop moving. And that is their whole thing. So trying to pin them down is like nearly impossible. You know, like you can, I've had so many instances where 
And you go into a cove one day and you like, they're just lit up. They're everywhere in there. And they might be on the surface or down deep. You go in there the next day, they're all gone because the shad might be gone out of there. Like they're chasing shad. That's wow. why they were mm-hmm. put in the lake yeah. is to contain the, the shad populations essentially. But it's just, <laughs> if you like suffering, let me tell you a sport <laughs> that you're going to really enjoy. I got the thing for you. Yeah, if exactly. you like suffering, you pick up fly fishing. That's exactly right. If you right. really you like yeah. suffering, you then yeah. throw in electronics. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like summertime so much because uh-huh. that's when I do most of my bass fishing, at least like up where I live on Beaver on like the river side. Because yeah. like all I do in the summertime for the most part is conventional bass fish. It's like, it's so casual. The yeah. weather's nice. Like, you got your five bay casters on the deck. And you're like, hmm, I'll throw a worm. Yeah. Like, there's the brush pile. Like, it's it's weedless. I'm just going to throw it in there. Yeah. It's like, there's a five pounder. That was fun. Jeez. That was easy. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and again, not to say the bass fishing's easy because it's, I mean, it's arguably more difficult than fly fishing um, from like a technique perspective. And like, you can really get into the weeds on bass fishing. But from, from like a comfort perspective, it's, I don't know. I love you conventional. No, you can't. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. And crappie. You, you're big on crappie too. Right? Oh, man. You want to talk about the ultimate relaxing sport. Yeah. Like get yourself a live scope and go crappie fish. It is the most fun thing you can do. Yeah. Everybody, like there's certain people out there that still call it cheating. Like I don't care what you say. Like 80% of the boats out there have a live scope on their on their trolling motor or whatever at this point. So... Like, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And then it's fun. It is so much fun. Next time you're chasing squirrels or plinking cans at the deer cabin, do it with the new Umarex Emerge. This 22 caliber break barrel air rifle might just be the coolest small game rifle I've ever used. With no CO2 air canister and an innovative 12 round multi shot magazine, you're not fumbling around for a pellet when it's time to shoot. It's silent as a whisper with a grown man design. And it comes with a scope, so I was hitting pie plates at 100 yards straight out of the box. Did I mention Umarex is right here in Arkansas? Come on now, stop what you're doing, head on over to Umarex USA using our link in the show notes, and use the discount code BHA2023 for 25% off your next order. Now that's a deal. Well, let's get into the striped bass. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of started hitting on some stuff there that was really interesting and, and... kind of um i don't know where do you want to start do you want to start with like what is a striped bass maybe or yeah i mean i guess we can get into like on this is the one that will probably say something wrong so i know you have some listeners that are probably experts in this but we can start with like how did a striper like get into a lake okay because the striper by nature is a saltwater fish right and that's how like i'm sure that most of the ocean saltwater or uh Striper fishermen are probably like mm, those freaking landlocked fish, oh, like yeah, yeah. just freaking cows just sitting there. It's the same thing with the steelhead. Exactly. Conversation. It's the exact same thing. Very Rainbow polarizing. versus steelhead. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's probably the same deal. I don't really know because I don't have the experience in that. But um, so by nature, it's a saltwater fish, but it's also anadromous. So like it can survive in both freshwater and saltwater. What was that word? Anadromous. Anadromous. There's one for you. There you go. Yeah, Write there's that a one down. Scrabble Focus. word. Back, back to the podcast. <laughs> anadromous. So they can live in fresh and salt. Exactly. Okay. So steelhead. Those are anadromous fish. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Because they go into the ocean again. Let's talk about something I know nothing about. Steelhead. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, I just know that they're anadromous. But 
Um, <clears throat> so over in the Carolinas, I hope I get all this right. Um, the Santee Cooper or the Santee River, I think is what it was. So it was a river system that ran into the ocean um, from, I don't remember where, but essentially in the 60s, um, they dammed it up and essentially the stripers that were running up the river from the saltwater side got stuck in there. Oh, um, the lake. when they formed the Santee Cooper Lake chain. Okay. Um, they essentially found that these fish were continuing to thrive in like a fresh only environment. Um, and I guess, I think they were also um, like spawning successfully in that lake river system as okay. well, just because, yeah, they had to have been because it was a river at the time. Yeah. Um, that being said, stripers are very, they're very, very finicky when it comes to um, the whole spawning situation. So a lot of people say that they're sterile. They're, it is a, it's not a sterile fish. Um, so they can spawn. They just don't do it successfully in very many places. So they have to have a river system to be able to spawn. So they'll run essentially in the spring. They'll run up the river system, follow the current, they drop their eggs, and then I don't remember. It's like fourteen river miles or something like that. They have to the eggs have to be able to tumble um, to be able to actually hatch. Okay. So because most of our landlocked systems don't have that, the stripers will continue to attempt to spawn every year, but they won't do it successfully. So they'll drop eggs. Mm. Most of them will. Okay. But basically, none of them will hatch. Um, and that's so like. Thinking, thinking about Beaver Lake, and you've mm -hmm. got the White River yep. flowing in at like Goshen area, Twin yep. Bridges, stuff like that. Yeah, that's when they're in spawning season in the spring. I assume. Yep, exactly. They're running up the river, and they're trying to spawn, but they're they're not actually doing it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're not successfully doing it. Okay. Basically, got it. Um, so that's essentially what created a like a fish stocking program with stripers. Mm -hmm. Um, they found how good of a, I guess, a, um, forage fish container, um, stripers were, uh, for shad and herring and things like that, or mm -hmm. whatever was in the lake systems at the time. Um, because a lot of our landlock or a lot of our lakes had huge forage fish issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them still do, but anyway, so they essentially pulled some of those fish um, and they, you know, they did what most, you know, fisheries do with trout as well. So they started artificially spawning them. Yeah. Um, and now they basically take them and just, you know, truck them all over the country and they dump them in, they stock them just like a trout basically. Okay. Uh, it works the same way. <clears throat> so yeah, I guess that's, that's like the big deal with how stripers got started in lakes gotcha. like how did they end up here you yeah. know like they've never been here before right, right. Mm -hmm. so in the white river system like you will find fish um in places they're probably not supposed to be because they follow current or they like come over floodgates things like that so the heaviest populations are in the lakes where they truly stock them that being said there are several lakes that have a small population of them as well okay um just because they ended up there. What about the striped bass and white bass crossover? Oh, yeah, the hybrid. The hybrids. hybrids are fun. How does that work with the whole 14 River Mile, the tumbling? The so those fish are totally sterile. 
those cannot spawn. The a, a hybrid. The hybrid cannot can. spawn. Okay. Yeah. So white bass, I think they successfully spawn, mm -hmm. from what I understand. Like I've not really done a lot of research on that, but there's enough of them up there around the twin bridges and whatnot that yeah, they definitely I, do. Yeah. Um, so a hybrid is completely sterile. From what I understand, they do not try to spawn. They cannot spawn. Um, talk about a fish that its population is dying out. Really, a, I don't know about across the country, but across Arkansas for sure. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be known as like one of those fish that was just everywhere in most of the lakes in Arkansas. And the, the game and fish here has really uh, eliminated almost all of the hybrid, like true hybrid mm. stocking programs in Arkansas. Oh, so that was a stocked program as well. Yep, exactly. Okay, in my yeah. head, for some reason, it was the female striped bass are dropping eggs. Right. Unsuccessfully, they're not being fertilized by yep. male bass. Yeah. So then the male white bass are, I guess, hybridizing. Yeah. On these eggs. But it, it was, a, it was a, a stocked fish. Right. Got it. Yep, exactly. So that's that's like a true test tube fish right mm -hmm. there. Like they make them at the, the fish hatcheries and they just put them wherever. See um, what happens. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's how the hybrid thing works. Okay, gotcha. So that's kind of, so that's what's going, that's, okay, so that's about the striped bass. That's how they got here. That's why we have striped bass. Exactly. In Arkansas. Yep. Okay. We've covered what is a striped bass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and how they got here. Yeah. And how they got here. Where do we go next? If um, people want to start catching these, is it, do we talk gear? Where do you want to go? Yeah, so I guess, um, like, where do you go for them? Like, how do you, or like, ah, let's go with best time of the year to, like, attempt to target one. Okay. Because I get that quite a bit. Yeah. You know, like, people that'll message me and be like, oh, I want to go chase stripers. Like, when should I go? Or people that are, like, in July, they'll message me and be like, I want to go chase stripers. Where should I do it? I'm like, mm, nowhere. Like, they're all <laughs> in 140 feet of water right just now. just missed it. Yeah. Um, so, that being said, best time to chase stripers on a, a lake system, essentially. Um Spring and fall slash winter. Um, so if you're looking for, from my um, experience, more of a topwater bite, like the true like blitzing stripers on the surface, your best bet is to go in the wintertime. Okay. Now for beaver, <clears throat> that means more like mid-October until first part of January, like mid-January, yeah. somewhere in there. With the absolute peak of it, um, again, in this area being December-ish. Like, okay. that's always my golden month yeah. for the most part. Uh, just because on the other two months, you have a lot of migration in the fish populations. Okay. Because, again, they're following shad. So the shad are um, so particular with water temperature that December is really one of those months where it can kind of stabilize finally. Um, and they're they're at the top because that is the only warm spot they can be. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they'll chase the shad up on the surface. Like that's the best time to find the schooling top water fish. Yeah. Um, it's also not so much of a fun time to fish for them because it's really cold. I was gonna say. Yeah. Um, but it's cool from that perspective as well because they're really like they're very undisturbed during the winter time because there's not a lot of people on the lake in general. Obviously, you don't have any of the the wakeboarders and wake surfers and stuff like that. But even fishermen, like you have, you have quite a few wintertime bass fishermen, but it's a lot less than mm -hmm. it is in the spring. And, yeah. and then even like crappie fishermen, like when crappie comes to mind for most people, they think like spring, Yeah, like gotta, gotta do it in the spring. Um, but so from that perspective, I like the winter the most because you can find them on top. 
um, and you're relatively unbothered by other people. Okay. So it's like, it's the whole experience, I guess. Like that's the really fun time to be out there. Right. So from the spring perspective, you have a shorter window um, and you have to chase the fish a lot. And what I mean by that is when I was telling you earlier how they, you know, like you can catch them in one cove one day and like they may be gone out of there the next day. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like we were talking about, they attempt their spawn in the springtime. Mm. So they're they're cruising their way up the river system. So you got to follow them pretty hard, especially okay. once they get into the river system. Mm. Like basically, I don't know, you could call it like the 12 bridge if you want to, the 112 bridge or the 412 bridge, like whatever you want to designate as the river part. Yeah. Um, but once they make it there, like they're making a beeline as far as they can up that river system. Okay. As well as following Shad. Um, so from like a fish eating perspective, I've seen them eat a little bit more happily in the springtime. Cause that's like, they're really trying to bulk up they're like the early spring. <laughs> exactly. They're trying to fatten up again cause they're trying to go and spawn and whatnot. Right. Um, early can, spring as in March. So early spring. Yeah. So, um, like the best kind of striper springtime is going to be, yeah, like March, like mid-March up until um, even the first part of June. Like, I've caught them as late as, like, okay. June 5th, stuff, stuff okay. like that. Yeah. But that May, that April-May time frame, like, that's the golden time to do it. Gotcha. For sure. That's a fun time, though, because um, they're typically chasing the bigger shed in the springtime. Mm-hmm. So the wintertime is all, like, based on um, really small shed because it's right after, essentially, the shed spawned in the spring cruise through summer you get to the winter they're very very small um so it's throwing a lot of small flies and things like that small bait springtime is just the opposite you can throw like and again i don't really do this but you can throw big flies yeah from the conventional side of things with the guys who troll for them with live bait they're throwing the huge minnows like when they're throwing topwater lures it's the big zero spook one knockers things like that okay big lures yeah so that's fun you get to catch them on bigger stuff yeah and you'll typically find bigger fish in the spring as well just because they're fatter. Um, and those spawning fish are making their migration. So the spawning fish are just naturally going to be a little larger. Um, so that's when you can catch your, your 30, 40-pounders, yeah, things like that. the big boys, the big <laughs> yeah, girls. Exactly. Yeah. So are you, when that's going on, say, it's, say you're going <laughs> in the spring, um, and, and maybe we kind of dive into each of those separately, winter mm-hmm. fishing versus spring, but say in the spring when you're going, are you, are you starting in, in that kind of like the, the 112 bridge and, and then going up or are you kind of working back and trying to find them that way? How, do, how does it work, like finding them? Man, I'll be totally honest with you. When it comes to spring, for me and stripers, um, I still try to stay like kind of mid-lake uh, and I try to catch them on the transition. So okay. it's a good time to find them on humps and things like that that are submerged um, in the lake. So for me, like, even in the springtime, I'll stay kind of mid-lake. I really, I don't like to chase them up the river as much. Um, I think from my perspective, it's just because I like to catch them in clear water. Yeah. Like, you can go catch them in the dirty water. Yeah. But you know that you're really not going to get into them, like, as a true topwater fish once you start moving up the river system. Um, but... I just like catching them in clear water. Okay. Like I like not having anything around me from like a tree or snag perspective because once you get around trees and like you get up into the river system where you've 
start to lose space, you're just going to lose so many more fish. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. Cause they'll, you know, they eat your fly and then they just run. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. Um, and then so, they yeah. get tangled up in, in the roots exactly. and the trees. That's okay. exactly right. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So even around mid lake, you know, you get around bluff walls and stuff like that and you have hundred foot or 40 foot trees. So there's a lot of places where you're like, okay, there's no trees here. But again, when you're looking on sonar, like on live scope or whatever, it's literally a whole forest of trees that mm -hmm. might just be 20 feet deep. Yeah. That's where you'll catch those big fish. Like you'll hook them and you'll never stop them. Like you cranky drag all the way down and they just right down into the trees. Gotcha. And you feel them like wobble you into it and you're like, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's <laughs> yep. the end of that. Yeah. That is the end of Bye bye. That. Yeah. And they hang your fly line most of the time. Mm. So typically they won't hang your like your leader or whatever. They'll go in there and like wrap your fly line around oh, a tree. No. So it's like your day can be done pretty oh, quick. Dude, yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Um, so for most of those reasons, I like to say mid lake in okay. the clear water. Gotcha. Yeah. What about what about winter? How are how are you finding them and like where do you start? Yeah, so wintertime, um and and feel free to you don't have to like spot burn or like, No, for sure. Like, That's why I was kinda like yeah. I could tell you specific areas, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like I stay mid lake yeah. uh, for the most part. For so the wintertime I will start mid lake um or mid upper lake and then basically just like look both directions for them. So mm -hmm. from a wintertime perspective, I'll never go south of the one twelve bridge. Okay. Um, so that eliminates a lot of water for anybody even wanting to try to do it mm -hmm. in the wintertime. Yeah. Um, typically, as it gets colder in like January, things like that, they'll move um, what I've found at least. Again, it might not be the case, but I see them move deeper and deeper as the winter continues to go. Okay. Um, so in like November, you might catch them, you know, in 40 to 60 feet of water by like January you're catching them over 140 feet of water. Jeez. Or 150 feet of water. Yeah. Um, With a fly rod. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and now, huh, let me explain that. You're not getting your fly 150 feet deep. Mm -hmm. You're looking for these fish that are suspended, basically sitting underneath shad piles. Um, so the later the winter also gets, um, the more the shad will continue to group up. Okay. So you can argue, that's why I said like December is the month. Yeah. Because um, they're not in super deep water, but the shad are grouped up at that point. So okay. like if you're doing it October, November, you have so many different like small schools of shad that are all trying to congregate together. They can't like, I don't know, they can't find each other. Or I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> yeah. But so you have small all brains. these. They miss yeah, friends. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you have all these um, fish that are so spread out. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of, like, groups of, like, one and two and three stripers that are keyed in on, like, small um, small groups of shad. And once you get towards, like, December, you have these, you know, half-acre-wide um, schools of shad that that you'll get, you know, now 100 stripers yeah. on this group of fish. Yeah, they're looking at that. Exactly. They notice. Yeah. yeah. So that's why, like, you got to check the deep water. Because a lot of times those shad might be, you know, five to 20 feet deep and those stripers might be just below them. Um, with the right conditions, sometimes they'll bring those shad all the way up to the surface mm -hmm. and that's when things can get pretty Western. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. So once you find them, um, how hard is it to like stay on them? Man, that's hard. Unless you're out there literally every day. Yeah. The problem with that is... 
um, it's weather based, you know? Okay. So like I'm very particular on the days that I like to go striper fish now, um, just because I, you know, I have the ability to fish different days, um, a little bit easier than just the weekends. Right. Um, so I, I try to find my like cloudy, like no wind calm days. Um, but the weather changes things very quickly. So like you get a really strong wind and those shatter up at the surface, like it blows those shad into coves or up against banks, things like that. A lot of people don't realize that, or at least people that are trying to get into this fishing don't realize how much the, just the wind can factor into Mm. like what the fish are eating. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what you have to chase. You have to, you have to almost go into it knowing like, I'm not chasing stripers. I'm chasing shad. Okay. Um, that's the mindset. Um, so a lot of people would be like, ah, this looks pretty good. Like, let's stop and fish here. It's yeah. like, well, are there any shad? Yeah. You know, like, not really. It's like, <laughs> I mean. I keep moving, yeah, buddy. Probably keep going. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we love making this show and being able to offer this podcast to y'all for free. But if you're listening and you want to support the Ozark Podcast to allow us to travel even further and meet more interesting people, head over to our Patreon and sign up to join our most loyal listeners. Let me tell you, these folks are 100% certified Ozarkans. And of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton providing the amazing music for today's episode check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com now sit back and enjoy his song american millionaire
Yeah.